welcome to episode 82 of the Avatar Hour podcast, your ultimate companion podcast to the world and fandom of Avatar. I'm Andre. And I'm Kayla. And today we continue our Legend of Korra recap with this week's episodes 105, The Spirit of Competition, and 106, And the Winner Is. In this episode, you can obviously expect full spoilers for The Legend of Korra, as well as spoilers for Avatar The Last Airbender. However, there may be potential spoilers for other Avatar media, but don't worry, we'll give you plenty of warning if we get into anything too spoilery. Before we get into the episode discussion, Kayla, I'm sure everyone's dying to know, how did the move go? Are you fully moved in just yet? or As of yesterday, I have officially moved out of the old apartment, so all of my stuff is now in the new space. But yes, I am moved in. I have been living here for the last few days. Um, you know, Easter weekend, I kind of just dropped my stuff at all the stuff that I could drop off at this apartment. Mm-hmm. Went to my dad's for Easter weekend and then... So I've been staying here for the last few days and gradually starting to unpack things. So hence, you know, for those who can see my, you know, face right now on on Patreon, uh, that's why you can still see my Republic City background because <laughs> my apartment is kind of a nightmare right now with all the crap just laying yeah. around. <laughs> yeah. But it is nice. The new place is really nice. It's, uh, you know, um, much more space in the old apartment and I have a little bit more freedom to customize it to what I want it to be. So I'm excited to get Good. my couch and some other furniture and to be able to hang up more of my stuff. Uh, my friends just got me some new posters to hang up, which I'm very excited about. Um, they're from, uh, it's like, it's like a Philadelphia tarot card, like, uh-huh. uh, you know, a poster. And so I'm one of gritty as the devil, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the flyers mascot for those who don't know. Uh, and the, uh, and like something from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and like a picture of a witch and I get to hang those around my apartment, which I am very excited to do. Oh, nice. Are you are you still in Morgantown or are you in Philly now? I am not in Morgantown and I am not in Philly. I'm actually closer to Pittsburgh now. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I now live out in Pennsylvania in one of the towns around Pittsburgh. Um, I do commute to Morgantown. I still work uh, for the university and I will continue to work for the university um, with my first job out of college. Yay me. Um, but it's going to be a hybrid position, so okay. I'll be able to commute and work from home. So what's that commute like? Uh, the commute's like about, depending on how fast I go, uh, it's about an hour or 15 Ooh. minutes, depending okay. on traffic. So it's not, it's really not, not that bad. bad. Yeah. Um, especially cause it will be a hybrid position. So it's only going to be like maybe three days a week that I'll be commuting. Yeah. And so, yeah, but I, I kind of like that actually. Cause he, um, I'm not the only one that drives. Like my stepmom also has an hour commute to her job. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to have that kind of time in between sure. to like wake up obviously when uh-huh. I'm driving to work and then to come back from work, uh, you know, kind of a chance for me to decompress after working in the office, you know, listen to some music, listen to some podcasts. So it's definitely been pretty good. Awesome. Awesome. Happy yeah. for you. Yeah. Thank you. We're sorry we had to take another week off. I know we don't usually like doing it, but you know, we do like practicing some work life boundaries, you mm-hmm. know, some work life balance. So yeah. We try to show up as, as best as possible. I don't know if anyone could tell, but I'm very sick right now. <laughs> but I have enough energy to do the podcast. So it's that's, it's, that's good. Yeah, it's been the highlight of my week because I've just been Aww. miserable in bed the whole week, basically. And like that trying sucks. to do work, but yeah. Everything's everything's fine. <laughs> he says with like the you know stuffy nose accent. <laughs> I literally popped two mucinex like five minutes before we started recording. Uh, oh my goodness! Hopefully that doesn't have a a drowsy 
component. Or it'll be like that one episode, Kayla, where you took melatonin before we started. Yep, I was as soon as as soon as he brought as soon as he started bringing up, I'm like, oh no, he's gonna reference the melatonin <laughs> episode. Ah, he's never gonna let me live that down. It's fine. <laughs> oh, it's <was> so funny. <laughs> no, I could laugh about it now, but then I was like, oh shit, that's embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, so we don't really have news this week, do we? No. So we could just go ahead uh, straight to the episode discussion. Sweet. Well, for episode 105, The Spirit of Competition, a.k.a. the Love to Decahedron episode, because let's face it, Love Triangle does not work for it because that is a mess. Uh, we will continue our thoughts on this uh, later in the episode. But let's get into the recap. So at this point, the Fire Ferrets are officially able to compete because of Future Industries uh, sponsorship, and they're now in the championship. Team Morale is super high. We open the episode with Mako, Bolin, and Korra training together and having a great time as buddies, you know? Korra has now taken a leave of, absent from tar- leave of absence from Tarlok's task force and now can focus all of her attention on the upcoming tournament and her avatar training. Um, so yeah, basically to sum it up, Bolin likes Korra. Korra likes Mako. Mako's dating Asami, but also has some lingering romantic feelings for Korra. That's probably the simplest way I can make this into. <laughs> like, ugh. Anyway. This is, I have some feelings there. Yeah. Um, and when Korra goes to the, like, Korra's out at Air Temple Island and, you know, Iki and Jinora, like, wanting all the tea, you know, just <laughs> the girl talk going on. It's so, it, and, like, they offer their own love advice and it's just hilarious, the way, like, the ideas they come up with, like, mm-hmm. you know, riding a fire-breathing dragon into battle and then throwing herself into a volcano. And, oh, you should do a love potion. Like, I don't know. It was just a cute moment for me. And then we also learned that, well, we don't know that it's Lin yet, but, uh, you know, we did learn that Tenzin used to be in a different relationship before he met Pema. And Korra kind of takes Pema's story to heart. And, uh, you know, it doesn't go well. Uh, Korra so said, we, I'm going to be a homewrecker as well. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to make a note in the doc of like Pema the homewrecker joke uh, yeah. here. But Pema I couldn't really think of anything good enough for it. <laughs> uh, that's that's good enough. Pema the homewrecker. I love it. Oh, my God. So meanwhile, the Fire Ferrets are absolutely crushing it in the first match of the tournament. It's just great to see how they've all progressed as a team, getting more, working more fluidly together, working off each other really nicely. Gee, I hope nothing bad happens to this. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> oh, my God. Because Korra then decides to take Pema's story to heart and confesses her feelings to Mako, to which she says he doesn't feel the same about her, which we learn later is not entirely true. Yeah. But... Whatever. Um, but Cora and Bolin go on their own date later. And I think, honestly, I just want to point out that their, like, friendship is just super underrated. And I just love seeing them, like, yeah. interact with each other. They just, it's just super sweet. And, you know, I mean, it also Bolin asking her out right after she got rejected by Mako is kind of a big self-esteem boost to her. Um, sure, yeah. You know, like... And also, I just want to point out that, like, I think what makes it super special for Korra is that he's not just into her because she's, he's not into her because she's, like, the Avatar. Yeah, yeah. she's the Avatar. He fangirled over her, you know, a few episodes ago. But, like, he sees her as this cool, genuine person he wants to hang out with. And, you know, she's a cool person outside of being the Avatar. So, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't appreciate that. I like, I really like it, like, because I, I don't know if I could ever see them in, like, a like a romantic pairing and I don't know if it's because they're like very similar to each other Mm -hmm. um which is not always a bad thing but um but I think their dynamic is just so sweet as as friends um that's kind of like my whole uh 
issue with the the episode and the love, whatever you called it, is because the hedron. <laughs> yeah, it's because like I don't know. Like I guess in some ways, like I can sort of empathize with Cora and being like you know coming from a really sheltered background and like being interested in the first person that gives you attention. Like you know, in that instance, it it kind of makes sense, you know. But on the other hand, I much would have loved to just like have an episode of just the three of them just like being friends you know yeah. and, like like even like Bolin and Korra giving Mako like advice on his relationship with Asabi or something you know like I think that this episode presented such a huge missed opportunity when it came to their like friendship triangle you know yeah and I, wish... I feel like it was kind of a complete 180 yeah from you know the bit. first five minutes of them laughing and joking and then next thing you know everyone's heartbroken by the end of the ep- like by the middle of the episode you yeah know? and they established some attraction between Mako and Korra but again it's like it's Mako does mention later on that he is already kind of like involved with Asami um but it's like, other than that, it's not really taken into account when it comes to like, you know, Cora's motivations or anything. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's like, uh, this is just a famously disliked, you know, portion of, of this season. Um, and with with good reason, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also want to point out this cool kind of world building moment with the Water Tribe restaurant. Um, you know, again, like when the influence is for Republic City is New York City, where all these different... Um, areas have different, you know, authentic food from different cultures. So I just think it's just cool to see that, you know, with all these different cultures living in one city where, you know, someone from the Earth Kingdom can enjoy a meal from the, you know, from water tribe cuisine, you know. Those know. those noodles looked really good too. <laughs> she did. They really did. Um, also, when at this restaurant, we run into the the big bad of the, uh, you know, pro-bending world. With Tano, who's voiced by fucking Rami Malek's in this episode, and you I know. love this. I <laughs> love this. I you just never would have thought Mr. Robot Rami Malek would be like, hell yeah, I'll voice a a character for Legend of Korra. I love just this. for like a, just like for a few episodes, and I'm like, they just, I mean, just all these different cast members, fucking like J.K. Simmons, you know, Rami Malek, like. I wonder. Aubrey Plaza is late in a later season of of Korra. Like I know. what the fuck? And I, and I think that's kind of a testament to like how much Avatar was in the cultural zeitgeist. Like, and I don't Good know point. for certain if this is how it goes or how it went with them. But I like to imagine that that like Rami Malek and J.K. Simmons, like you know, either their kids like you know were obsessed with Avatar and they wanted to get a spot on it, or they themselves loved Avatar and wanted to get a spot in it. Like, I could very much see Rami Malek, the eccentric person that he is, being like, oh, they're making that? I want to be a part of that somehow. Can you... So actually, fun fact real quick. Um, So, I don't know, uh, you know, Gravity Falls, I've probably talked about it as a recommendation, still highly recommend it, but Gravity Falls, J.K. Simmons is also a major character, plays a major character in Gravity Falls in season two. Um, And, like, I was listening for to this um, commentary track from Gravity Falls that was made into a podcast. I was listening to that one day, and you know Alex Hirsch, the show, you know the creator showrunner for Gravity Falls, did you know he talked about J.K. Simmons being involved in the show, and he said that it was because his kids were big fans of Gravity Falls. So that's how they managed to get him, you know, on the show, engaged the interest. And same thing, he got John Stewart to be on the show, <laughs> like. For the same reason, his kids love the show. So I think that's definitely how he got involved with Cora. Yeah, definitely. 
So, well, back to the pro-bending arena. Uh, a bit of the romantic drama starts to bleed into their performance in the ring. Now, I mean, I know we talked a little bit about how this was the love dodecahedron was being handled, but um, yeah, it's not my favorite part either, as I've made pretty clear by my tone for whenever I bring it up. But I do, as much as I wish it could have been handled better, I will say that it's pretty realistic for it to be messy. Oh, of course. Of hormonal course. teenagers. <laughs> yeah. And Cora, who has been sheltered all her life and has no idea how to relationship. So, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it makes sense why she would do what she does and why, you know, Mako and Boleyn behave the way they do. Yeah. And a know? lot of my, a lot of my like eye rolly thing about this is, is 90% the fact that like, yeah, this is exactly what would happen. Like, I think 10, 10% of the issue I have was just like, kind of like the missed opportunity when it came to like the writing of the episode or the show. And, mm. but, but yeah, this is like, I, I've definitely like been a bystander of stuff like this, like all the time. So this definitely 100% happens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and then eventually Cora ends up kissing Mako and like they have a whole argument like you kissed me back. Like it was just I don't know. I don't know why that made me kind of laugh a little bit at them just like arguing about it later. Um, but Bolin being sad breaks my heart and I don't like seeing Bolin sad. So <laughs> not cool with that. Um, however, I want to point out this moment that made me laugh is that when Mako goes to find Bolin, he goes to the restaurant and like ask the host if his brother's there, which is like similar to what someone would do to someone who gets drunk on a regular basis. Yeah. You know, so I, I just appreciate like the joke there of like, you know, Bolin eating his feelings and all that stuff. And yeah. um, I, yeah. I, I have just like a small issue with just how they handled like Bolin's reaction because like, yeah, it's kind of played I, for laughs. I wish it wasn't played for laughs, you know, like yeah. I think because, <coughs> because of his role in the dynamic of the group being like the comedic relief or whatever, I yeah. think the direction they took with his reaction was it. I don't love that, that Bolin's like heartbreak was played for laughs, you know, because I yeah. think that could have been, again, there was another missed opportunity where we could have like dived into Bolin just a little bit more as like an actual person, you yeah. know? And like, I don't know, like, the stop was excessive and the, you know, once he's, like, noodle drunk later on, like, you know, that's that's funny. You can still tell he's hurting, but but there is that, like, that great shot, or uh, that animation, like, when they zoom up on him and, like, the yeah, the, the flowers, flowers are blowing like... out of his hand. It's, like, the, the music's really dramatic and then it stops and then it's, like, like, Milo fart bending basically. It's, like, the same yeah. kind of, like, humor. So, again, yeah. don't love that. It's just, like, another thing that I was, like, ugh. I feel like we didn't we didn't need that a whole lot, you know. No, I I think that like the funny like the just like the noodle drunk Bolin did make me laugh a little bit, but like it, I definitely agree it could have been handled. Yeah, if the if the better. initial reaction was taken more seriously and then later on it was played for laughs, I think I'd be a little bit more there okay with go. it, you know. But that, that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. Um. So now there's even more romantic drama sliding into how they're playing in the next match and to the point where they almost lose. Uh, like, you know, like, but, you know, Mako and Bolin have a brotherly heart-to-heart after they get knocked out of the ring and Cora manages a Hail Mary knockout and they make it to the final. And they decide to all move forward as friends. So, that's yeah. pretty good. But now they got to face off against slimy-ass wolf bats and <laughs> it's a little scary for them. And yeah. that's the episode. <laughs> I, I, really, I really liked the, uh, the match because... 
Um, it's not flat out said, but a lot of the times where at least Mako is thrown off his feet, it's like nine times out of ten, it's because he's either looking at Bolin or he's concerned over Bolin. And I think mm-hmm. that like that um subtextual dynamic that Mako's very protective of Bolin is kind of bleeding into the game. And again, yeah, it's not outright true. said, but I noticed this time around that every time Mako would be caught by surprise or like attacked, it was because he was his attention was on Bolin and making sure he was okay. So that I yeah. really liked. Yeah, me too. I noticed that as well. Um I do also want to point out the one-on-one fights that we see in the in the arena where we see Bolin go up against another earthbender and then we see Korra go up against three people, you know, or, you know, and then we have another one-on-one fight later in the next episode that I really like too. But um, just again, pro bending. It's just fucking cool. Just a really great progression of what you see in the show. And there's some cool moments there. I also want to point out another kind of underrated moment in the episode that I didn't get the chance to talk about yet is the fact that Korra kind of shoves her jealousy aside for a bit and thanks Asami for her father's sponsorship yeah. and offers a genuine apology to Bolin for hurting his feelings. Yes. Like, a lot of people don't give Korra enough credit for her compassion. And we've talked a little bit about this in the previous recap of Korra, but um, I just want to point it out whenever I can about how compassionate she is. And, you know... Despite her sheltered upbringing, she has the capacity to be emotionally mature sometimes. Yeah, I never thought Cora was lacking compassion. I definitely think she lacked a certain level of empathy and an inability to put herself in other people's shoes. But she does exhibit compassion and she holds herself accountable for hurting Bolin's feelings, which is very mature on, Mm -hmm. on her, especially at 17, 18 years old, you know? Absolutely. Um, I now kind of switch into a more comedic thing here. I want to laugh at Bowen's being, leave on some ladies for the rest of us, okay? Literally. I just like that line. Uh, also, Flamio noodles as a, as a commercial. The noodliest noodles in the United Republic. I just love it. Like, he segues into the commercial after he sees Bowen throwing up noodles. Like, oh, by yeah. the way, that reminds us. <laughs> um, but I also want to point something out because this is something that has been fucking rubbed off on me after dating my girlfriend for the last almost six months is that uh, it's, I'm starting to realize that there's elements of sports anime in uh, Legend of Korra with like just, I don't know. I mean, I haven't really seen one yet, but based on what Lindsay tells me, because uh-huh. she loves her sports anime, uh, you know, like just the kind of like over the top, almost over the top stakes with like going up against the wolf bats, for instance, that seems like something that would happen in a sports anime. Oh, interesting. Um, so... I mean, I'll, she's almost done the first season. I mean, the, the first season. She's almost done season three of Atlas. She's getting to Korra very soon. Oh, nice. Um, so I love to ask her her thoughts on whether, you know, some of these things that have any similarities to her sports anime that she really likes. So. Cool. Yeah. But I think that's all of the details. I want. There's not really a whole lot to like dive deep into in this particular episode, but still worth talking about. So with that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with the recap of episode 106. See you in a minute. Hey everyone, Kayla here. Before we get into the second half of the episode, we just wanted to remind everyone to check and make sure you're following the Avatar Hour podcast on your favorite podcast platform of choice. And if that platform has a rating system, please consider it leaving us a review and maybe some feedback. With subscribers and reviews, it allows us to reach future listeners and to help the podcast grow in the long run. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. 
And we're back. All right, let's get into 106. And the winner is dot, dot, dot. So the episode opens and Koromako and Bolin are getting ready for their uh, final game. They're training. They're having a good time. And then uh, over the radio, uh, Amon comes on and he calls on the council to cancel the pro-bending finals, citing that it's time for the citizens of Republic City to stop treating bending athletes as heroes. Um, so, of course, this causes Cora, Maka, and Bolin to interrupt the council meeting to try and persuade them to keep their arena open. By the time they get there, everyone's, like, pretty much agreed that they shouldn't keep the arena open to prevent any conflict. Um, and then Lynn comes in and backs them up and basically says, like, I, you know, I expected this cut-and-run response from Tenzin, but not Oof. the rest of the council. Oof. And she was, like, and she says, like, um that her and her metal benders can provide extra security at the arena, make sure like the skies are covered, the river's covered, you know, and um Tarlac their basically armor takes is also her impervious to attacks too. Yeah, and their armor is impervious uh, to the to, not not all attacks. The cheap blocking. Yeah, the cheap blocking, yeah. Um Tarlac ends up persuading the rest of the council, save Tenzin, and they agree to keep the arena open. And this we find out, uh we find this out later, plays right into Amon's plan. And he was betting on the fact that they wouldn't keep or they wouldn't close the arena. Um, so, you know, barring what we know happens in the the rest of the episode, do you think that the council made the right decision? A and B, would you as a pro bending spectator be comfortable attending that match? Uh, I would go with no and no. Uh, <laughs> you know, like no, I don't think that was a good, just good decision for the council to do, uh, especially with a direct threat like this, and especially knowing how much of a threat Amon poses, you know, um, you know, with the ability to take people's bending away and things like that. Um, I mean, hey, like, like even with, um, and if I were a pro bending spectator, uh, I don't, I don't like that. I, I honestly, like, I wouldn't want to risk my life going to a sporting event. <laughs> You know? Yeah, and it's surprising that a lot of people were, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I guess, like, there is something to be said about, you know, just kind of, like, the role this plays in people's lives in Republic City, like, mm -hmm. just pro-bending in general. But, yeah, I couldn't think of a real-life, you know, example of, you know, a direct, like, terrorist threat being made. And, well, I guess it wasn't that direct, because he just said, like, there will be severe consequences. But... You know, but that's still a threat. It is still a threat for sure. Um, yeah, I just don't. I don't. Even if there was extra security, I wouldn't be comfortable. And yeah, no. I don't know. I don't know. No. It's weird. Yeah. So, Lin and Tenzin agree to accompany each other to keep each other safe. And Cora connects the dots and realizes that Lin is the woman Tenzin left for Pema. And oh Tenzin's like, uh, I'm going to have to have, have a word with Pema. <laughs> and also just like the fact that she's like, I love that she teases him about it. He's like, see you later, Mr. Heartbreaker. And yeah. like, you know, you know, also the point where like he starts like, well, you know, like Lynn and I were different people going in different directions. It was like, why am I even telling you this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like one of my favorite moments there. I also want to point out uh, how unnecessarily dramatic like Lynn decides to be with stopping the gavel with her like. Yeah. You know, yeah. hook thingy. That was so unnecessary, but I love it. Theater. <laughs> I also love when Cora's like, I'm surprised Lynn uh didn't try to, you know, put Peba in prison. And Tenzin said, Oh, she tried. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, also another moment I wanted to point out, uh, when like they're trying to persuade, like, you know what? 
pro bending is the is where you know people can come together in peace. Yeah, to watch benders beat each other up in peace. peace. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. like them trying to scrounge up an argument to keep the pro bending arena open yeah. from the pro bender perspective. Like I love it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, that night, uh, the fi- the finals taking place at the Preventing Arena, and the firefights firefights are going up against the White Falls Wolfbats, which we were just talking Ooh. about this this dramatic ass entrance with the fireworks yeah. and the capes and, and the, the masks. Costumes. Yeah, it's just crazy. Um, <sighs> and so we cut stupid. to these like firefare cosplayers in the audience a couple of times. And Kayla, you said you had something to say about yeah, that. Yeah. So fun fact: they actually were going to originally put a reference to the foaming mouth guy by having oh. a foaming mouth girl in the audience and her going crazy over pro bending and doing the exact same thing he did on Kiyoshi Island. So that was that was what I wanted to try to, that's what I was trying to point out. But then they decided not to do that because I've been a little too derivative, I guess, or something. I'm not actually really sure why they did it, but they were going to have a foaming mouth girl. <laughs> Maybe they just decided it would be too much with like cabbage core. Maybe they didn't want a whole lot of callbacks. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I would have appreciated it either way, though. Yeah, right. Give us a little bit of fan service. Yeah. <laughs> As a treat. <laughs> so the match begins, and we soon realize that the refs have obviously been paid off to make sure the Wolfbats win. Um, and this is just, again, me not understanding sports because, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that they were paid off, uh, yeah. but like no one's like really doing anything doing? about it. Yeah, I'm really, so it's I like, was kind of confused about that too. You know, is it, is it really that easy? You know, like, yeah. And even like the commentator is pointing out like, like oh, these are some very off. controversial calls, you know, but yeah, mm. I guess, I don't know. Mm. Um, and in the second round, Cora gets an opportunity to knock out Tano when they do the one-on-one. So that was really fun because she did it stupid, very quickly. Destroyed his stupid hair hairdo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we also keep cutting to Tenzin, who seems to have been brushing up on his pro-bending rules. Um, That's a bad call, Ref. <laughs> turns to a sports dad. like <laughs> Literally a sports dad. I love it. Love it. Just supporting his, his avatar daughter. <laughs> Um, so the Wolfbats ultimately win the match with an illegal knockout. And just as they're about to celebrate their victory, undercover equalists in the crowd begin to electrocute the metal benders, including Lin and Tenzin. Um, I always love this, this bit. It's very like, I don't know, like, I don't, I, I don't have an exact example of it, but I don't, I just really like it. It gives me chills, honestly. Like it's, you know, it's the... You know, like the part where like they take like they pull up their they pull up the masks over their face uh-huh. and it's like all in slow motion and like yeah. you know we see Tenzin start to realize what's happening but it's too late. Lin gets taken out and he gets taken out and it's just like such a cool moment. And yeah. we knew that the Equalists were a threat, particularly Amon himself. Yeah. But now we see like they're everywhere. Oh shit! They are like not just Amon is a threat. The rest of them, yes, not just because they can chi block. Yeah. But also because they have technology on their side. Yeah, and I know? think is this the first? I think this is the first time we see like the gloves in action. It is, I yeah. think, because I don't. I I think I would have pointed them out if they were if we saw them sooner. But I think it's yeah. mostly just chi blocking. So Amon <sighs> makes his entrance, and he quickly makes an example of Tano and the Wolfbats by taking their bending away. Um, and he makes a speech to the entire audience, saying that it seems fitting that they would all celebrate the victory of quote-unquote three bullies who cheated their way to victory which he's not wrong um 
And he says, like, this is the exact same thing that benders do to non-benders of the city every day. And he states that the fate of the Wolfbats should serve as a warning to all other benders of the world. Everyone who stands in his way is going to suffer the same fate. He declares that the revolution has begun and promptly blows up the arena. <laughs> um, again, just would love to call out uh, Amon's planning and timing. Yeah, There's right? a lot of uh, things that have to go at the specific time, different cues lined up. Amon it's, it's the, you think yeah. Amon had time to be a theater kid after like he left the... Oh, definitely. He left the water definitely. <laughs> yeah. There's a stage manager off screen somewhere calling all yeah. these cues. He got like, you know, he got like the probably stick out the mask from like a theater, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very, very, very. So much like also kind of reminds me a little bit of like a, t- a tiny, tiny bit of Phantom of the Opera. Uh, where he yes. starts sabotaging the show because it doesn't go the way he wants it to. You yes, know? definitely. So had the you know the mask, this quote unquote scarred face in Amon's case, the the flair for the dramatic, the explosives, it's all there. The parallels are there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so Cora and Lynn go after Amon and the Equalist in an attempt to apprehend them, uh, but they end up failing, but not after having this really cool fight on the dome of the pro betting arena. And again, it's just one of those cool fights that oh, that just every time I think about season one, I think about um like this particular sequence uh because again it's just really cool the way everything's lit the the fight sequences the choreography is just really cool and we get to see cora and lynn team up against the equalist so again just an overall amazing fight scene i do really like also the moment where like lynn has a choice to make between going after the equalist and saving cora like you see them the decision happen on her face i want to give like the credit to the animators for making that happen you know because it's all non-verbal you know um, so I just want to give the animators some credit for these expressions. Um, and what else I wanted to point out? Lynn saving Cora, the way she does it in such like kind of an almost acrobatic kind of way. It reminds me a little bit of what her sister does with, uh, you know, with the people in Zalfu with like oh. the, the acrobatics and things like that. Oh, um, I don't think Lynn ever went to Zalfu before we see her go there in season three, but it definitely reminds me of her. Of uh, yeah, see in that way. Oh, for sure, so, love that. I'm pretty sure at this point in the show they didn't have the plans for other. Uh-huh. I think it was supposed to be a mini, you know, just a, one season. Yeah, yeah. So, but it just does. Now we have that kind of look ahead. Yeah. So. <laughs> um. Yeah, and we end the episode. Lynn feels uh, that she's played right into Amon's hands, and tends and declares that. Republic City is at war. And I noticed just again from covering these episodes, Tenzin does get the very ominous last lines of each episode. It doesn't happen yeah. every episode, but he has these like last lines in every episode that is dun, to dun, the dun. effect of things are getting bad. Yeah. <laughs> and dun, I, dun, it's dun. just the way JK Simmons <laughs> also delivers these lines, I just think is is just really good. So um, um. I also wanted to point out uh, another thing that I really appreciated is uh, Lynn and Tenzin's initially reluctant but eventual mutual respect for each other. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, to the point where we see like it gets it gets even better by the end of the series, by the end of the season. You know, when Lynn makes her decision, you know, it's just I, I just appreciate seeing those two like be respectful for it, towards each other, um, and also the announcer being. You know, he's he's doing a play by play of him getting attacked, and he's like, you know, I was like, they come into the booth, and you know, oh, I think you froze. No, I'm I'm here. Oh, I thought you froze. I'm so sorry. You're just like so still. 
I was like, are you frozen? <laughs> you no, were so still, I couldn't even see you blink. Like, I'm here. I was like, you here, buddy? <laughs> I'm here. I'm listening. I'm just not moving. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the announcer doing a play-by-play of him getting attacked made me laugh. He's like, they're in the voting booth. You know, they, they, you know, they'd come into my booth and, oh my God, he has a glove and I think he's about to electrocute me. I'm currently wetting my pants. Like, <laughs> I love it. I, it's so stupid. Job. It's so stupid, but I love it. And I think that's our recap for yeah. who the winner is. Yeah, pretty some some pretty straightforward episodes for sure. Um, but yeah, you want to get into uh, Phantom Corner? Sure. So this week we have a listener submission at Extreme Secrecy uh, underscore who I believe we've all done Phantom Corner of one of their messages before. I b- correct? Yes, and this was from Instagram, I believe. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so. Extreme Secrecy says, Hi, I know you guys already covered the Search comics, but I wanted to give my thoughts on it for Fandom Corner. One of the things that I love so much about Atla is the different types of relationships that were explored. A lot of people identify with Sokka and Katara's sibling relationship. However, when I watched Atla for the first time, I was surprised that they included the sibling dynamic that Zuko and Azula have. I've had a strained relationship with my siblings, and I always thought there was something wrong with me because I never felt like anyone I knew had strained sibling relationships, and I never saw it growing up on TV. When I saw Azuko and Azula play it out in the show, it was so relatable and I felt seen. The way their relationship unfolded in the Search comics also felt authentic as well. I've had the same interior monologue that Zuko had in the comics when he feels the pressures to take care and look out for his family because family first mentality, even though they've inflicted trauma on him. You can still care about your siblings, even though they've hurt you in ways you can't forget or forgive, but they're your family, so you still care about and want to help them. I felt that the Search comics explored this interior struggle with Zuko, that sorry, that Zuko has with Azula in such a genuine and authentic way. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the the highlight of that comic is just seeing how the relationship kind of unfolds in that way. Um, and I'm glad that you were able to get some like you know some catharsis out of watching that uh, be played out in the show and on the comic. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And with, uh, we don't see Zuko and Azula's relationship as much as we see uh, Sokka and Katara's relationship because, you know, we see them throughout the entire series. So I'm glad that the search gave them more of a spotlight on their relationship yeah, as well sure. that, we are, that we've gotten plenty of from Sokka and Katara. Yeah, definitely. That, that's, the, that, that's my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for so, sending well, that in, you. guys. Yeah, thank you, Extreme Secrets. We really appreciate you sending that in. And of course, if you want to send in some more Phantom Corner stuff, we'll give you the information to do that at the end of the episode. All right, let's get into recommendations. Kayla, what do you recommend? Sure. So I found out about this on TikTok. It is called The Ninth Hour. It's a musical by Kate Douglas and Schaefer James. And essentially, they describe it as a rock noir operetta retelling of Beowulf. Uh, I promise it's not as boring as it probably wasn't in in your English class. (laughs) Um, But basically, they use a lot of like, uh, it's it's, it's pretty simple in regards to like the costuming and the, um, you know, that kind of like the costuming and like the setup for it. Because again, it's in this beginning stages, but it honestly kind of reminds me a little bit of Hadestown with it's, it's not instead of it being, there's a little bit of folk in it but it's you know hey sounds a folk opera this one leans more into the rock side of things but it's um 
I think the lyrics are really beautiful in some parts and the uh, especially because now that I've just come more aware of like musical cues and things like that. It's just really cool to see them come together. The entire uh, first performance they did is available on YouTube at the Metropolitan Museum's uh, YouTube page. It's only Mm -hmm. 50 minutes long. And they have an EP out with six of the songs from the show. I'm really excited to see when they release the rest of it because the music's really good. And honestly, I'm excited to see how they grow from here. Um, It's just it's I think it's just super interesting. I've watched some of the behind the scenes of it and they talk about how they wanted to, you know, it's the whole story, the whole epic poem. Beowulf's one of the oldest like stories out there. Uh, but the epic poem, you know, it's Beowulf versus Grendel, uh, this horrible monster. And now, like, the show wanted to explore, like, the villain in Beowulf and the hero in Grendel. And just the way they do that is pretty damn cool. And when you watch the show, uh, at least the first draft of it on the Metropolitan's YouTube channel, you can see, uh, you know, it's, it's just cool how they use movement to represent, like, these different things like Grendel and Grendel's mother and things like that, uh, just through these dancers. It's just super cool. I could gush about it for a while, but the ninth hour musical, I recommend you follow them on their pages and watch the performance on their YouTube channel. Cool. Something that I've been watching uh, this week while I've been sick is um, the girl from Plainville on Hulu. Um, I'm not really into true crime a whole lot. um, And I don't think this falls under true i mean i guess it does but it's like a dramatic retelling of i don't know if anybody remembers but this was a case that happened a couple years ago that gained actually a lot of traction about like the girl who um like persuaded her boyfriend to commit suicide um like over text messages basically um so this show is kind of like a dramatic reenactment of that um Uh, i've seen commercials for that yeah it was it was uh yeah, it was really crazy the way it played out. Um, and I think the trial was like pretty recent, but um, yeah, it's been, it was, it, other than the fact that, you know, it actually happened, it's a pretty, you know, um, compelling uh, retelling of, of what happened. And yeah, if you're a true crime buff and you enjoy that kind of stuff, The Girl from Plainville on Hulu, check it out. Cool. Well, if you'd like to follow us and see what's next for the podcast, you can follow us on TikTok at the Avatar Hour Pod, on Facebook and Instagram at the Avatar Hour Podcast, and on Twitter at Avatar Hour. And as we just saw with our fandom corner this week, we are interested in hearing from you and what your thoughts are, headcanons are, theories, or even memes. Feel free to send them to us in our DMs on our social media pages, or you can give us an email at the Avatar Hour Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want some more Avatar Hour in your life, then consider signing up for our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month or up to $5 a month, you can access our show notes, ad-free editions of our episodes, Zoom recordings, and much more. This week, we will be recording uh, an episode of our flagship benefit Avatar After Hour, where we will just be discussing some of our expectations and what we'd like to see in the upcoming Dawn of Yang Chen novel. So if you'd like to join us for that discussion, that'll be available at the $5 Air Acolyte level. And you can access that at patreon.com slash the Avatar Hour podcast. But that's it for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you next week with a brand new topic episode. But until then, my name is Andre. And I'm Kayla. Bye, everyone. Bye, y'all.